Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, it's time for episode 49 of Plastic Model Mojo, man. At 50, just keep getting a little bit closer. We're almost there. At 49, can you believe it, man? No, I can't. It seems like we started doing this the other day. I know, you know, it's like Goldfinch and Company just had 100 not all that long ago. I guess it has been at this point, but uh, wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> 50 episodes. Well... We'll have to do something for 50. We'll figure that out. But uh, what's, what's, what's been going on in Dave's model sphere since uh, episode 48? Well, Dave's model sphere for the past about 30 to 60 days has been a little bit cramped because as you and I were, were talking, work, you know, when you're, when you're busy at work or you got a lot of pressure at work or you're putting in a lot of time at work, it, it exhausts you. You come home. And you want to model to relax, but you just, you know, you, you don't have any energy. So the last 60 days or so, I've had a lot on my plate job-wise, but uh, managed to wrap up in the last uh, two weeks or so. Major contested hearing, a major mediation, a got my taxes done. Uh, I've got a trial on Thursday, it's going to be fairly simple. But other than that, that's taken a lot of that weight off my back. And I'll tell you what, I really feel it in the model room because the last the last week or so, I have been really getting stuff done in the model room. Well, that mosquito's coming along. We can talk about that a little later. But uh, Absolutely. Glad to hear it, man. So how's your model sphere? Uh, I tell you, I was uh, just tonight, actually. The July-August issue of the IPMS Journal showed up today. Yep, mine showed up two days ago. And uh, you must be privileged being an e-board member. Yeah, that's right. I get it. Special deli- special courier pigeon. Get the hot copy. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you've read any of this stuff yet. I actually haven't because of all the other stuff going on at work. Uh, well, the, the, the editorial, this this issue is i'm just gonna read a blur of it the, the title is is negative modeling a positive influence and it's from uh, dana mathis and uh he says i'll just quote uh from dana mathis uh, i recently encountered the term negative modeling on a scale modeling podcast it was used to describe the time and effort modelers invest in fixing mistakes as it is one step forward two steps back you know I don't know if we coined that phrase, but I know if you heard it on a podcast, it came out of your mouth. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, yep. Listen, I'll have to read it now. But yeah, there are days. Luckily, I haven't had much in the way of negative modeling lately. That's, you know, while my positive hasn't been as much as I'd want it to be, my negative really hasn't occurred too much. So I'm kind of feeling good about that. So the model sphere has been catching up on some periodicals. That's about it. And oh, okay. Talking to the machinist about lathe and millwork. Yeah, I saw on Facebook you were playing with your lathe a little bit. So yeah, uh, we can talk. We can talk about that later. But uh, yeah, that's that's what's been going on. Good, good. 
Well, you know, when you're done with work and you get down into the model room, there's nothing better than grabbing yourself a little modeling fluid. So, Mike, what's your modeling fluid of choice? Well, I kind of splurged on that bib and tucker last time, so I'm back to my staple, my bullet orange label. So it's it's a stalwart, yep. low-cost bourbon. I, I really like it, and uh, folks know it. Never disappoints. Never disappoints. What about you? Well, uh, I'm doing something different. This may be, I think... My, I've done mixed cocktail. I've done cocktails or mixed drinks. I've done beer. I've done bourbon. I think I even might have done gin, but or scotch. I know I did, did single malt scotch, but this may be the first time I've done a wine. Uh, I went to a neighbor's retirement party the other day, and one of our other neighbors brought over a bottle of red wine from a winery called Nineteen Crimes, and this is their Cali Red. It's kind of distinctive because it has a illustration of Snoop Dogg on the <laughs> on the on the label of the wine, and uh, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, I had given her some peppers that I'd grown in my garden, um, and so she brought over a bottle of this stuff and gave it to me as a thank you. And uh, this stuff's good. We'll have to we'll have to talk about it at the end, but this will definitely get me through this episode. Well, all right. We'll have to hear Snoop Dogg, eh? Snoop. That's right. All right. That's interesting. <laughs> well, tonight we're going to do a little bit something different because uh, we have a lot of listener input in our special segment, which we'll get to a little later in the episode. Uh, so we're going to kind of hold on to some listener mail until next episode, episode 50. And I also want to reiterate that uh, in last episode, episode 48, our kind of call to action was... Uh, what are you doing to get better? What's your plan for getting better? And we've gotten some good feedback from that. And I'd like to see some more. So uh, over the next uh, two weeks, if you've wanted to say something on that topic, what, what's your plan for getting better? How do you tackle that? Send us an email, plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. And uh, we'll work that up into listener mail for episode 50. Uh, there is one listener mail, though, I want to to get in. Um, it's from our friend Michael Luzzi from the Jack Wiselick, Polish Coast Watchers chapter of the IPMS up in Peoria, Illinois. I don't know. I feel like we're kind of surrogate. It's our surrogate chapter. We got it. We, yeah. we, we belong to the IPMS, but we've made some good good connections and some good rapport with the guys in Peoria area there, and uh, they seem to to enjoy the show. In fact, I'm going to go back to the IPMS Journal again because uh, they have a a nice article on the uh, Polish Coast Watchers chapter. And uh, we get a couple of plugs, man. All right, I'm telling you, living large, living large. I'll uh, I'll quote these again. This is from President uh, Bob Eisler of the Polish Coast Watchers, and the article. I guess uh, actually, Michael Luzzi wrote the article, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did. Quick check there, and he says mostly. Most recently, Bob uh, Bob Eisler, the president, uh, has been hosting in person meetings while COVID cautious members. Zoom in. Bob is a gracious host who provides a variety of snacks, thirst quenching modeling fluid made famous by Mike Basket and David Knights on Plastic Model Mojo podcast. They were influencers, man. Nice, nice, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love that. And the and the guy, listen, uh, the Polish Coast Washers are a very very active chapter, and uh, they're they're really uh, making a name for themselves. And I'm kind of happy to see that happen. 
And it goes on to say about recruitment that new members have been joined, have joined the chapter by meetings uh, in the modeling aisle at Hobby Lobby, <laughs> joining the club Facebook page, connecting with a nearby IPMS chapter, attending make and take events, or hearing about the club on Mike and Dave's Plastic Model Mojo. So, All right. Glad to help, guys. Yeah, do we get a kickback on that or something? I think uh, <laughs> 100 times zero is yeah, I know. still I know. zero. That's uh, all right. Uh, hey, if we're growing the hobby, man, that is that is a that is a big bonus. Well, we're trying, and it's nice to hear that maybe we are doing it in our own little way here and there. Yep. It's good stuff, man. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, you know, speaking of recruiting and all that stuff, um, I want to take a moment to ask the folks who are listening to this episode, when you're done listening, Please go to whatever podcast app you use to download and listen to the podcast. Take a moment to rate the podcast. We'd appreciate it if you gave it five stars. It helps. Um, We'd also like you to tell a friend. All of you out there are modelers. I know that all of you have to have one modeling friend who probably isn't listening to the podcast or any podcast for that matter. And we'd appreciate it if you would reach out to them and tell them that you enjoy this uh, this podcast and get them to listen. Now, if they're an older member, you may have to help them figure out how to download a podcast app on their phone and do all that stuff or show them where to find us on, on their home computer. But we'd appreciate it if you do it. It's the best way for podcasts to grow. And we've been growing. And Mike and I are over the moon about how much we've been growing. So please do that for us. And if you're checking us out, please check out all the other podcasts out there in the podcast land. You can go to modelpodcast.com. That's modelpodcastplural.com. It's a consortium website. We podcasters have set up with the help of Stuart Clark from uh, the Scale Model Podcast to have a single repository of of, podcasts. all the podcasts out there with links to those shows. And I think now I need to go look, but I think he started including the blogs as well. That's Uh, great. So we'll have to see that. And some of those blogs are the inside guy, Mr. Jeff Groves from uh, our neighbor up in Indiana there. Hopefully we can see him in Cincinnati next week. I saw him in at uh, MMCL show. So I am really looking forward to seeing him in Cincinnati. And he sent me an email telling me he's planning on being there. And uh, maybe you won't catch cold and sneeze and blow that little uh, first-to-fight TKS tank you built into oblivion. <laughs> I know. I cannot wait to see that in person. I've seen the I've seen the one that uh, Tom Balky Romanowski built out of photo etch in seventy-second scale, but I don't think I have seen one of these TKS tankettes in seventy-second scale in plastic. So I'm really kind of looking forward to that. Well, you better take your glasses. Uh, definitely. I don't go anywhere <laughs> without my glasses, man. Oh, we've also got Chris Wallace and model airplane maker. He's on, uh, he's got a blog and a YouTube channel, some good stuff there. He's always got something good to say. Yeah. Ah, sprue pie with frets with Stephen Lee. Steven's Steven's done a couple of really nice, uh, uh, blog posts lately, including a, a, a long form blog post, uh, that, I found really, really interesting. So if you're not going over to Stephen's blog, please do so. Take a look. Do some reading, particularly of his long-form entries. They're very, very thought-stimulating. Uh, I've reblogged a couple of them myself on my blog. 
And last but not least, a scale Canadian TV, our good buddy, Mr. Jim Bates out on the West Coast, who will hopefully be joining us for our episode 50. Yes, I've already confirmed that he will if he hasn't... uh, if he hasn't committed some sort of hockey suicide first, simply because uh, neither of the two teams he roots for are doing well in this early bit of the hockey season. <laughs> There's still time to turn it around. That's what I keep telling him, man. Trying to keep, keep him out of despair. Finally, speaking of growing the hobby, this is the, the spot where I ask people to join their IPMS national organization, either IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Australia, IPMS UK, uh, whichever, whatever national organization covers you, please consider joining. Uh, The national organizations really do a great job. And sometimes I don't think people appreciate all of what they do. So let me just assure you, they all do a lot for the hobby. Please consider joining and uh, join your local chapter too. If there's a chapter within an hour or even uh, an hour and a half of you, you ought to consider joining and and go. You know, going to the meetings if you can, even if you can't always get to the meeting. Making those modeling connections is great. I'm here to tell you, as much fun as modeling is, sitting around with like-minded. People talking about modeling is fantastic. So if you've got a chapter near you, please consider joining them too. Well, Dave, let's pause here for a little bit of time and have a word from our sponsor, who is also our special guest tonight. You got it. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. All right, Dave, we're back, and it's Wagon's Ho for Omaha time. Yes, sir. I'm pumped because we passed a milestone. We did. Uh, at the time of this recording, it is 273 days away until the 2022 IPMS National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska. And we just passed the opening of the hotel booking window. <laughs> we warned you. Yeah, I don't know if they're sold out yet. As you and I record this on the 19th, which is four days after the uh, the booking window officially opened, I don't know if they're sold out yet. Uh, If you haven't booked your room and you want to stay in one of the two convention hotels, uh, you you need to call and make a try of it. Uh, I was on the the phone at 8.30 in the morning on the 15th making making our reservation. I was texting with Mike while I was on the phone with the with the hotel folks and we got our reservation and uh, we know a fair number of uh, people who did. So uh, if it's one of the things that makes the national convention seem like it's really going to happen soon is when you, when you make that room reservation. So I'm, I'm pumped already. Well, I can also announce that uh, the convention website is up now mm-hmm. and it is IPMS USA 2022 dot com all one word ipms usa 2022 all one string of characters dot com right that's uh, two zero two two yes the only pertinent information right now that's the next milestone is that general registration or online registration will start february 1st 
great. Acor- according to the website. So that's, you know, we've got a few months for that, but something to put on your calendar so you can get in there and get that done as soon as possible. And don't forget and have to wait in lines later. <laughs> that's right. Listen, I'm telling, I'm telling you, as I told you leading up to Vegas, the thing to do is to pre-register because uh, Mike and I, Mike and I got to Vegas Wednesday night after everything was closed up. We walked down at nine o'clock on Thursday morning, just as pre, as just as registration opened. Walked up to the pre-registration table, and we were packets in hand, name tags on, and and headed into the vendor room at like nine o five. It was it was a fantastic fantastic process. Bob and the whole gang really did a great job. I have no doubt that uh, the guys in Omaha will do a great job. So keep an eye on that. And when it opens, go ahead and get pre-registered. And I also wanted to say something that it seems like most of the podcasters we talk to regularly are are all registered as are all booked their rooms as well. I know Scott and the, the Posse gang is, have, have done theirs and OTB has done theirs. And OTB, according to their latest episode, and their big scream of wagons ho. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wonder where they got that. I don't know. Glad, <laughs> glad to hear it, though. You, you and me both. So I hope that works out, because it's just going to be a big time. I'm looking forward to our our now traditional, since we've done it once, it's now become a tradition. I am looking forward to our Thursday morning breakfast with all of the podcasters. All right. Well, we're going to need a bigger table, I got a feeling. I got a feeling you're right. And all our our Canadian friends are all booked as well, sounds like. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The you know, they're going they may have to sneak under some barbed wire to get across the border, but sounds like they're coming heck or high water. Oh god, hopefully by the summer of next year they'll get some relief. I w- I would think so. All right. Well, we thought that last year too. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, until the information gets a little more forthcoming and regular, that's going to be all we got tonight for uh, Wagons Ho for Omaha. So get your room booked if you hadn't. Absolutely. It's a great hotel. It's a great convention center. You'll love it. So, Mike, uh, you, it sounds like you've actually been building a little. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I've got a few more parts together, a head and a limb or two for the Musaru Cup Gundam Challenge we're working on. Well, good. How how are you in, How are you enjoying building a Gundam? Uh, I don't know yet. It's it's kind of a look and do kind of proposition because it just goes together so well, and all the all the seam lines, most of the not all of them, but most of the seam lines and joints are hidden. They're like covered up by a different panel that has a natural brake line or something. So. Right. So it's like build like building armor then. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> More like Legos, I think. <laughs> there you go. Hey, I had to take that shot. I, I think what's what's interesting about it is, you know, you're sitting there looking at these sprue gates and 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 you know, joint lines, gaps and stuff, and, and you're just like, Wow, well, do I need to do something about that or not? So you gotta like look what's happening in the next two or three steps to see if you even need to bother with it. Right. And like, like so far, like 90% of the time you don't. Well, I think that's one of the attractions of these Gundams for people is that, you know, for folks who enjoy building, but don't particularly enjoy filling and sanding, 
I think the Gundams provide those folks with a with a, a real enjoyable outlet that makes the you know that gives them the the joy of construction and the the accomplishment of actually getting something together without what I know some people find is tedium. It's not, I don't always find it that way. Sometimes I find it relaxing, but filling and sanding can be kind of frustrating and some modelers don't really like it. So I think that's one of the attractions of the Gundams. It'll go straight to paint pretty quick, I think. Yeah. Which will be fun. I'll be breaking out that infinity and trying some of the new paints well, see, I bought. You know what? When you think about it, this this is this this may be a great opportunity for you to break that infinity in and really, really exercise it and play around with it without having any particular uh, you know uh, in, any any particular scheme imposed on you. I think so. So we'll see what happens. Well in, in addition to that guy, um uh, folks are getting tired of hearing about it, I'm sure. about. I'm just about to get those stinking ammo boxes done. <laughs> At least the wooden parts. The, the yeah. shells are another story, but I'm working on those too. But, uh, you know, I'd hope to get that done last weekend. But, you know, when you leave for a friend's wedding at like 4.30 in the afternoon and you don't roll back into the house until like after 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of takes the wind out of your modeling sails. Not only do you not get anything done Saturday evening, yeah, but uh, it's not very high on the list Sunday either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the in the words of the great Roger Murtaugh, I'm getting too old for this stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I've posted on Facebook. I've been I've been messing around with my machine tools. I think I'm about ready to turn a, a gun barrel that's got some real dimensions to it. I don't know what yeah. yet, but uh, doesn't really matter. I, I just got to try something. Well, I, I really will be interested to see if you've got enough travel in that lathe that you could do uh, brass or aluminum turned barrel for that uh, model collect turret. Because I think that if you could do that, it'd be really impressive. I don't know, man. It's a long. I know. I know. I could always buy a longer bed for the lathe. You can buy them separately. Oh, can you really? Yeah, I could I could make it a fourteen inch bed instead of a ten. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. There's your inspiration. <laughs> we'll see. That'd be a lot of metal. I don't yeah. think you, brass would probably be too heavy. Yeah, it may well be. Well, of course, you definitely would have to drill it out. Uh, you know, at least to some depth. And the other thing, I haven't said anything about it here or even on the Facebook. Also, I have a milling machine, and I've got a. It's a project just to play around with the mill. It's a an old T thirty four. I'm trying to trying to machine the upper uh, fighting compartment roof off of. Okay, so so for those folks out there uh, who aren't mechanically and uh, tool inclined, I know what a lathe is. What exactly is a milling machine, and what does it do? Uh, a milling machine has a cutting tool on the z axis on on a vertically oriented spindle and it's got a two axis travel underneath it and it's basically for making square cuts and flat cuts and stuff like that i mean there's other things you can do with it but lathes for turning round parts mills for doing everything else pretty much gotcha in a nutshell um more on that later 
I don't I don't have much of an update there, but I am playing around with the milling machine too, but I'm having some trouble clamping the part. Well, let me ask you this. Considering what you're doing in your new job, has your sudden affinity for playing with your own home uh, tools, such as lathe and milling machine, do you think that any of that comes from what you're getting to play with at work? Uh, probably a little bit, and then I've got a pretty good rapport now with our, our machinist, uh, who's a super guy and eager to help me. He's, he likes teaching his craft. Well, good. So that's helping a lot. So, and he's like a ninja Jedi Spetsnaz machinist. I mean, <laughs> he's he's not. After he teaches you all the secrets, he's not going to have to kill you or anything, right? Uh, no, but he's he's no uh, he's no uh, oh, what's the word? Apprentice. He's no yeah. apprentice. Certainly the journeyman. Yeah. Well, what have you been working on? That's what I've been working on. Well, uh, what I've been working on is uh, the Mosquito is in paint and in the middle of decals, and it's going along well, but I'll tell you what, the last several models I completed had little or no in the way of, in the way of decals. And this, of course, the Mosquito, it's you know, got a normal number of decals for an aircraft, including data stenciling and all that. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I think decaling, like a lot of things in modeling is, a, is particularly like airbrushing is a per- perishable skill that if you don't do it regularly, you, you kind of, I don't want to say forget how, but you, you lose some of the skill in doing it. And, uh, I lose your finesse. Yes, exactly. And I, I've uh, putting the decals on these mosquito. This mosquito, I've run into a couple of challenges as far as making sure the. You now I'm I'm a person who glosses before decals, and um, you know a couple of areas I didn't I didn't pay attention to that detail and didn't get it as glossy as I needed it to be. Also playing around with setting solutions and, and decal softeners. Uh, there's a huge range of them. And uh, I've been kind of using this as an opportunity to experiment with them. And uh, I need to I need to build more stuff with decals because yeah, you can lose your touch. But the mosquitoes coming along. Uh, meanwhile, the TU-128 is moving along as well. For some reason, I'm... I'm fairly inspired by it at the moment, uh, at least partly because that keeps gives me an excuse not to go chip the M30, which I have to do and will do now that uh, my work stuff is mostly behind me. And uh, but I've been making some progress on it. I, I like it. I like the way where it's going. For as big a model as it is, it's amazing how few parts it has comparatively. You would you would think there would be a lot more parts to it, but there aren't. It probably has no more parts than the mosquito has, and the mosquito's half the size of, or less than half the size of this thing. So, but I am looking forward to it, and uh, um, I'm looking forward, but trepidatiously looking forward to putting bare metal on the thing, to hitting it with the owl clad, and trying to really get good at a metal finish and that's the whole reason i did this was to get better at scribing and to get better at bare metal finishes 
that's part of my plan for getting better. And, uh, and I'm enjoying the, the challenge. Now I may find myself in the middle of it and end up regretting it, but you know what, <laughs> you know, no, Hey, you don't take a chance. You don't make progress, man. That's true. That's true. Yep. Got to put yourself out there every now and then. And you really do. And, and in fun, now, don't feel like you have to do it. Like it's some sort of work assignment. Cause as I, as I said, you know, work has been for the last 60 days or so a real bear. And, you know, you don't want to come home to a hobby and feel like you got to work at it because that's, that's just pressure you don't need. But if you get joy out of trying new stuff, learning new skills, you know, when you don't succeed, yeah, it can be a bummer. But when you do succeed, it's like, wow, I didn't think I could do that. Or I just learned something new. Just like uh, you and those uh, ammo boxes, learning to paint fresh wood rather than weathered wood. It's You've now learned a new skill that you didn't have before. And it wasn't something that was immediately intuitive. You had to think about it and play with it. And you actually tried several different things. And and now that's a tool you can stick in that toolbox if you need it again. That's right, man. So is that all you got going? That's pretty much it. Although I'll tell you, there are some things on the shelf of doom that are calling my name. So as soon as this mosquito's done, which may be within the next 30 days, if I'm lucky, then uh, I'm thinking I'm going to pull something off the shelf of doom. Like an M30 howitzer. Well, there's that, but the M30 is not on the shelf of doom. It's still sitting on my bench. Oh, it's okay. Just, it's just mocking me. It's just mocking me. I learned to ignore those mocking yeah, yeah. models. I hear you. <laughs> so if, you, if you've been building a little, have you been spending a little? You know, I've been quite reserved lately. And the only thing I've bought since the last time we ran this segment are three sets of color modulation paint from the Mr. Color line. Yeah, I saw those. And I didn't know those existed. How many are there only armor sets or their aircraft sets? Or? Uh, I don't know. I've not looked for any, but I've not stumbled across any aircraft ones in my search for the ones I've, I was after. So I, I think there's only four sets, and I think they're all armor sets. Gotcha. And now I own three of them. And you'll uh, own the fourth, I'm and sure. I'll, I'll own the fourth as soon as I can find it domestically. It's kind of elusive right now. But uh, uh, they are, well, let me back up. TJ Holler from the Plastic Posse podcast posted some, or excuse me, some photographs of an M4 Sherman he's building for their their M3 M4 group build that they're going to, there, I'm, I'm in the thing too. I just haven't started my project yet. But the, the, the goal is to build these Shermans and M3s. Stewart's and Lee, or not Stewart's, but Lee's and uh, Grant's and all the subtypes from that, the self-propelled guns and recovery vehicles and all that, and entering them in Omaha as a group build. Yeah, kind of like they did this this year in Vegas, right? Right. And TJ had used the, the olive drab set. I'm like, and I was like, hey, where'd you, where'd you get these? Because I've, I've been thinking about it for some time to get these, but... You're you're the first person I've seen use them, and it looks like it looks like it worked out pretty well. We had a little short conversation about it, but anyway, so uh, he's kind of responsible for my 
broken wallet, though it's not broken too bad. I, now I picked up the olive drab set. I picked up the uh, Dunkelgelb set for German mid late war, and I picked up the the Panzer Gray set. I'm still looking for the Russian green set. Now what's what's neat about these sets is they're they're four graduations of of a base color, right? There's like right. a base, a shadow, and, and two highlight colors. Yeah, and most of the Mister Color line are in ten mil bottles. The bottles in these sets are in 18 mil bottles. So you get quite a bit of paint, actually. Good. So I'm I'm pleased with the packaging and what was in the, you know, the color shades look good. Uh, I like the way the graduations are broken down the, to the degree they are. Um, I don't know. I'm probably going to fire one of them up on the Gundam. That's probably what I'm going to do. Ah, oh, okay. But, you know, I'm not going to do some... World War II scheme on a on a mobile suit. I'll, I'll just use use those colors as the as the base for the, whatever scheme it is. Oh come on, we'd all love to see a, a mobile suit and an ambush scheme. You know, <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> just think all the practice you'd get with that infinity. I don't need an ambush scheme to do that. I know, I know. I'm just abusing you. Well, what, what that- about you? That's all I've bought. I absolutely okay. three sets of paint. Of course, I was on vacation for part of the week. That probably had something to do with it. <laughs> probably had something to do with it. Um, actually, I have been pretty darn good. I ordered, um, sadly enough, off of eBay, I ordered a set of decals solely to get some serial numbers for the mosquito that I'm building. Um I tried to basically look around the sheets I had to cobble together the serial number I need uh, because the mosquito I'm building is not one that's been depicted alone on completely on any sheet out there. Um, so I had to come up with a, a serial number and I went on eBay and I have paid like 10 or $12 to get a decal sheet where I am only going to use three, six serial numbers, three on each side. So <laughs> that's, that's a little sad. And I admit it's a little sad, but you know what? Um, it's just the way it works. Uh, it's not in the scheme of things. It's not that big a deal. I'm not bothered by it. In addition to that, uh, I ordered uh, a book on the AK Color Color Weathering Pencils book uh, from Doctor Strange Brush, along with I. I'm thinking it was Mig Ammo. I'm trying to remember who uh, made it. They made a little World War II train car. You know the classic forty and eight. Yeah train uh train car uh they i think mig ammo made it in 70 second scale as a resin item and uh, evan's probably partly responsible for this because on his site in addition to having all of his armor videos he occasionally uh paints and weathers a train car yep and and train cars are really they're really a great palette on which to practice weathering. And also they, you can stick them in dioramas almost anywhere. You know, you can put a little piece of track and uh, a train car on it, 
it works out. So it's an interesting eye-catching thing. And uh, I was able to pick it up for a very good price. So I ordered that as well. But other than that, I'm, I think I'm still in my post, uh, my post uh, convention, uh, post nationals funk. Although I did buy a couple of things. I think I mentioned last time uh, at the MMCL show, uh, I sold some kits, but I also, uh, picked up a few things. So stuff worked, stuff worked out and I probably ended up about even on that. <laughs> well, we've been pretty good. So yes. Absolutely. Maybe not next time. We'll see. <laughs> I already got my eye on a few things, but we'll. Uh, you and me both. In fact, there's an order I have to place really soon. Me too. That's for episode 51. You got it. <laughs> well, speaking of Dr. Strange Brush, uh, we've had a chat with him earlier this week and as a, as a recurring guest. And uh, to preface it a little bit, we've spent a, several months now soliciting listener questions and uh, along with him he's he's done it as well because he gets questions all the time and we've kind of distilled these down into some basic questions that we're going to talk about in this in this segment so let's get on to the revenge of dr strangebrush well dave our special segment tonight is the next installment of dr strangebrush joining us tonight from the west coast is john miller himself john how you been since we last saw you Howdy ho! Doing doing well. How about yourself? Ah, uh, not so bad. It's uh, been a while since we saw you in Las Vegas at the Nationals. It's a pleasure to meet you face to face. I'd never done that, so uh, thanks same. for hanging out with us. Definitely, definitely, that was an experience. Yeah, we appreciate you dropping by the party suite. That was a that was a <laughs> that was a fun experience. And uh, you you were actually in Las Vegas for real reasons. You were putting on presentations, weren't you? I was. I gave two talks uh, on airbrushing um, while I was there and had very good attendance at both. A lot of the people that I know from the site, you know, that are, that are clients or customers of mine for years showed up with their questions. And it was really nice to put a face to a name. So I want to uh, give a shout out to all the folks that showed up to both my talks. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate your support. Um, yeah, and went really well. And it was a good show all around. Are you planning on doing seminars at uh, Omaha? You know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make Omaha this year. Oh, okay. Bit of a conflict with a, a family function that we have scheduled for for next year, so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it or not. But if I do make it, I will be giving. I'll, I'll offer myself, you know, um, if they want to do some talks. But uh, I won't know that for the next couple of months. Okay. Well, fingers crossed. Yes, I appreciate that. Well, as we've been harping for a couple of. Uh months now we had the idea and john had the idea to solicit uh questions through his website and through the podcast and we've kind of distilled some of those down and uh that's how we're going to handle the discussion tonight i'm going to go through these questions and uh and let uh john expound on them a little bit how's that sound sounds good all right well we ready to roll ready when you are all right well the, the first one comes from uh mr paul wheeler and he's asking one airbrush per paint to ease crossover contamination uh, between acrylics and lacquers. Should we be using one more than one airbrush, John? No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, John. John, I need to remind you, you sell yeah. airbrushes. Oh, oh, damn. That's right. Um, okay. Yeah. Let me, let me say that again. No. Okay. 
<laughs> no, you don't need two airbrushes for for each uh, each thinner that you're using. And now that said, if you are deep pocketed and you enjoy working with airbrushes, um, uh, as do I. I like working with them, not the deep pocketed part. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, then get two airbrushes because that makes it easiest. But if you're like most folks working on a bit of a budget, you don't have to have two airbrushes to shoot acrylics and lacquers. In one session, when I'm sitting down to, uh, to work, I will often go back and forth, bounce back and forth between an acrylic and a lacquer. And I'm only using one airbrush at a time, even though I have about 50,000 of them in my collection. I usually just use about one at a time. Um, and there's, there's an easy trick. Now, let me just back up for a second. And for those guys who haven't experienced this, let me, let me share with you some of the dangers that can, that can occur when you do bounce back and forth between the two and you don't take, um, a proper, uh, don't use proper technique. So acrylics, um, are very, very sensitive or some acrylics are very, very sensitive to, uh, to lacquer thinners. Um, in fact, it'll either screw the paint up or it'll make the paint cook off prematurely. Mission is a good uh, example of this. The polyurethane in mission, if it exposed to a little bit of lacquer, will start cooking off prematurely and turn into a goo. So if you are, let's shooting, let's say let's, you're shooting Alclad and you finish and you clean the brush and, uh, you know, you, you blow the brush out. Here's what guys will do. Blow the brush out and you hear that hiss of air and you think, ah, my brush is clean. Well, yes and no. There's, there's a little reservoir of fluid usually sitting on the back end of the master seal. Because as we all know, that master seal works as a wet seal, right? So a little bit of thinner, a little bit of paint getting on the back of that seal is not out of the ordinary. If you're using a brush that's a little older and has a seal that's a little worn, you can expect even more thinner or paint on the back side of that master seal. Now, if you don't get that out and you put your new paint in, that is going to leach around the master seal. And if it's a paint that's sensitive to lacquers, um, it's going to turn, you know, it's going to turn sour on you. So one of the easy tricks for using one brush and bouncing back and forth between, let's say, a lacquer and an acrylic is, let's say you've used the brush for a lacquer. Before you go into your acrylic, take some of that thinner, put it in your, in your paint cup, Blow it out like I'm sure guys are going, yeah, I do that. I blow it out with some thinner. Okay, that's good. Blow it out. But then put some more of that acrylic thinner back into your paint cup and put the brush on, in its holder and let it sit for five minutes and give it hmm. time for any of that thinner that's sitting on the back end of that, that master seal to come around and, and get diluted with the acrylic thinner. And then when you blow that out, you can pretty much rest assured that if there were was any residual lacquer thinner hanging on the back of the master seal or in the innards of the brush, that five-minute uh, incubation or that five-minute soak um, with an acrylic thinner is enough to wash it out so it won't make your paint go south. And, you know, reverse that if you're going acrylic to lacquer and you don't want the lacquer in any way contaminated. Well, put your lacquer thinner in there, let it soak for five minutes blow that out. Now you're ready to go into a lacquer. Yeah, I that that's a great tip and never nothing I've ever thought of. Now, do you between acrylics and lacquers, do you ever pull and wipe the needle? Sure. 
Sure, I do. Um, uh, you know, both paints tend, you know, if you if they're mishandled, if, if you, you put in a little bit too much thinner or too much water, if you're using an acrylic, you can shock the paint and sometimes the paint will, will stick to the needle. You can see a film, you know, growing, yeah. building up on the needle or a film building up inside the paint cup. And when I see that, oh, yeah, most assuredly I stop. I'll oftentimes empty the paint cup, pull the needle, wipe the needle down with a uh, with a Q-tip. Um, maybe wipe out the paint cup, maybe take your break from spraying for a minute. If you see that kind of build up and, you know, go through a little five minute period of cleaning where you, you pull the needle and put some thinner back in your paint cup, let it sit for five minutes and soak before you get to your next color. All right. Well, if we're done with that one, we can go on. I think so. So, so to, to, yeah, to, to, to summarize, you don't need two brushes for, for two different paints, but if you want two brushes, for two other paints, I'm the guy to see. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, this one's kind of related. It comes from uh, Jacob Gavin and tricks for transitioning from lacquers to acrylics. Now, I'm thinking this is not necessarily in the same paint session, but moving from one formulation uh, as your staple to another. Right. right, right. Yep. This is one I get a lot. I get, I get the email from folks on the backside of the power curve guys who have gone from acrylics to lacquers and fallen flat on the, their airbrushing face, if you will. And then, you know, send me an email going, gosh, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Help. So, you know, making that jump from lacquers to acrylics can be hard, um, especially for guys who've never shot acrylics. And there's a couple of key points you want to, you want to keep in mind. If you've been shooting lacquer based primers, those lacquer uh, based, you know, paints and primers will cut through finger oil and mold release really quickly. So any residual mold release or mold release you left on the kit um, that you didn't clean off before you started, more importantly, any finger oil that you have imparted to the kit while building it, those lacquer based primers will cut right through that. Not so much with an acrylic. In fact, acrylic primers, no matter what it is, don't really like uh, finger grease and they don't do well with mold release at all. So if you're making the transition from lacquers to acrylics and you don't want to get that, I can't get the acrylic primer to, to stick for nothing, um, start with uh, removing all the mold release from your kit with a one-to-one -one mix of denatured alcohol and Windex. And just as an aside, the denatured alcohol uh, available at Sherwin-Williams stores on the West Coast, Lowe's and Home Depot uh, in most other parts of the country, the denatured alcohol I'm referring to um, should be for cleaning glass. If it says it's for a fuel or for a camp stove fuel, that ain't the one. So get your for cleaning glass denatured alcohol. Get your old style Windex with ammonia, not vinegar. Mix them one to one. You can make up a gallon and you can reuse it over and over and over again. Soak your sprues in that for a few hours, then wash them with hot water before you start building. That will rem remove the mold release. And then prior to, to priming, you should think about degreasing a second time to remove the finger oil from the kit. And this time you can use the same one-to-one -one denatured alcohol and Windex. Um, get yourself uh, a nice cotton uh, a piece of cotton uh, T-shirt or what I prefer, and I have them on the site, is Chem Wipes, which are a 
uh, a tissue that is made for cleaning uh, microscope objectives and it has, you know, no lint or anything, uh, you know, in it. So I'll take one of those and I'll, I'll wipe the model down, wet wipe it down with my one-to-one mix and then set that aside to dry before I prime it. One more thing you may want to think about doing is if you can, if the surface of the model uh, amends itself to this or lends itself to this, I should say, um, that is to say, if you're not doing a, ca- a tank with a very corrugated surface, let's say you're doing an F8 Crusader, you know, which is a pretty smooth airframe, you may want to think about micromeshing that airframe with something like six or eight thousandths micromesh. And micromesh, as you guys mostly know, uh, come, comes on either uh, pads or on sheets. And I use it with cold water, about a, a coffee mug's worth of cold water with three or four drops of dishwashing detergent. So it's nice and soapy. But uh, if you can micromesh the entire surface of the model down, yes, it's another step that takes time. But that micromeshing the surface will roughen that plastic up just enough to give the acrylic something to bite into to give it a surface sufficiently rough that once it it cures, it will cure in place and it will adhere. Um, So those are a few things to think about when it comes to getting ready for priming. Um, Now, when it comes comes ready to to actually paint, if you're switching from lacquers or enamels to acrylics, you're going to experience way more tip dry because acrylics dry faster than do enamels and some lacquers, although lacquers dry pretty fast too. One of the things you're going to want to think about doing is adding some Liquitex uh, Flow Aid and some Liquitex Slow Dry or paint retarder to your base acrylic thinner. So what I mean to say is if you're moving into, let's say, Vallejo, I would take my Vallejo thinner and to that thinner, I would add 5% Liquitex Flow Aid and 5% Liquitex Slow Dry. Now, Liquitex Flow Aid and Liquitex Slow Dry can be found at any Joann's or Michael's or any craft store uh, across the United States. I've been using them for 15 years. They, they work with all acrylics. That's one of the reasons I like them. It, it's been a long time coming, but I just today, today, just received my shipment of Liquitex Slow Dry. And along with Flow Aid, both of those reagents will be available on Model Paint Solutions starting next week. Um, so if you have a hard time uh, finding them or if there isn't a Joann's or Michael's close to you, I'll have them on the site. So once you have those two reagents, Flow Dry and <laughs> Flow Dry, um, Flow Aid and Slow Dry, go back to your base uh, thinner. Um, let's pretend it's Vallejo. Add both of those to 5% to your thinner. So then when you use that thinner to dilute your paint, you already have the, 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 the flow and you already have the retarder in there to help you with that drying of the acrylic, which is going to be a problem if you're not used to it. So again, to summarize, um, do a better job degreasing, or you have to do a better job degreasing both before the build and and before the priming if you're going to be using acrylic uh, primers. And if you're switching into acrylic paints, think very much about adding both flow enhancer and retarder to the paint so it behaves a bit more like an enamel than it than a straight acrylic and lastly if you're used to priming in or painting in lacquers or enamels you know that those paints lend themselves to what would be called a wet coat you can shoot you can shoot those right onto the model with a tip close enough to the to the surface of the model 
with the airbrush delivering a sufficient amount of paint that the paint hits wet and kind of, you know, moves all over the surface. That's what makes enamels and, and lacquers so great is how they level after they're shot. Acrylics, not so much. They don't like to level as much. So one of the things you're also going to want to think about, oh, by the way, the, the flow enhancer and the retarder will help with leveling. That will help all acrylics level a little better. So that's another good reason to use them. But what I was going to say is with regards to applying them, since they don't like to go on wet as a wet coat directly, you may want to think about working on dry versus wet coats. And with a dry coat, the brush is pulled back the, the, and just enough paint is delivered so that the paint partially dries before it hits the model. And when it hits the model, it should be flat. There should be no shine coming off the recently shot paint because most of the solvent should have evaporated while it was flying through the air. That's a dry coat. So once you've got your dry coat down, 30, 45 seconds later, go back and shoot a wet coat directly over that dry coat. Where the wet coat, the brush is closer to the surface. You're delivering a bit more paint, so the lever is farther back. You're going to move the brush at a faster rate, so you don't deliver uh, develop uh, runs or, or or spiders. But what the dry coat does is it gives you a catch. It gives you a a, a sticky surface um, for that wet coat of acrylic to hit and stick. Um, in other words, in some in some ways, you have to kind of trick acrylics to get onto the surface in a nice, smooth manner. Whereas with enamels and lacquers, they tend to go on like that by themselves. So anyway, I, that was a long-winded answer, but those are some of the key points you may want to think about if you're switching from lacquers and enamels into acrylics. John, one thing I wanted to mention, and I am I am well well known for hating acrylics and loving lacquers and enamels. One of the things that I found that the difference between the two is lacquers and enamels are much more thinner tolerant. You don't have to be uh, quite as precise where it seems to me like acrylics are are much more sensitive to getting the amount of thinner just right. Yes, you're right. And that, that, that gets to the whole leveling situation with enamels and lacquers. You can, uh, people who are shooting real color, AK real colors, this isn't just a cheap plug. I love them. I do too. I do too. And one of the things people say is, you know, if I, if I made a mistake and I flooded what I was shooting, and if I had done that with an acrylic, it would have spidered and made a mess. But with, you know, real colors or any other lacquer that you're shooting in a lacquer based thinner, the stuff levels, the, the, the puddle kind of moves around. Right. And you, you don't get the you don't get the spiders and the and the runs that you do uh, with an acrylic as easily. Did I answer your question, David? Yes, it did. And that's that's exactly been my experience. All right, Mike, jump away. Oh, uh, real quick, since it, it's it's on the list, and it's kind of related to what you just talked about. Nick Andrews is asking, what's the difference between a, a paint retarder and a flow enhancer? That's a great question. That's a great question. So think of it this way. A flow enhancer is going to make the paint more wet. So if you're having tip dry, you're just getting those goobers building up, you know, right there at, at, on the needle. And of course, those goobers fling themselves right into the middle of your hood or your panel or whatever. Um, if, if you're getting that, that's a good case of the paint's just too dry, right? And that is best addressed by adding flow enhancer. And again, Liquitex Flow Aid, 
lot of lot of companies are making flow uh, flow aids now. It's kind of like become the rage in the last couple of years. Six seven years ago, nobody was making them, and now it seems like AK Mig everybody is making them. And y- you know you can use the the Vallejo flow enhancer, the Vallejo retarder. In my hands, I'm just going to be blunt. The they don't actually work as well as the Liquitex reagents. Not 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 in my hands, which is why I'm sticking with with all Liquitex. So that said, if you're just you just have a situation where you're developing goobers, um, you may be able to address that just by adding Liquitex Flow Aid. But let's say you're sitting somewhere down in Texas or New Mexico, and it's in the middle of the summer, or Let's say you're sitting in Nebraska and it's the middle of the winter and you have the heater turned up to 11. Both of those situations are going to be dry and arid. And so sometimes flow aid by itself isn't enough to to stop the paint from drying on the tip. So in that case, along with the flow aid, you want to add a little bit of retarder or slow dry. And the difference there is that slow dry is not going to wet the paint as much as it's going to slow the chemical reaction of how the paint dries. So it's going to make the paint dry at a much slower rate. So one of the things you'll notice is when you add uh, flow aid, you don't see a big increase in the time it takes for the finish to dry. But if you end up adding retarder or slow dry, you will see it a, a pretty demonstrable increase in the amount of time that it is required to get the finish entirely dry. So in, to summarize, if you don't have serious tip dry problems, you can usually get around them with just or deal with them with just a uh, flow aid. Um, if you have serious tip dry problems, or you're, you're shooting in really arid dry conditions or you're shooting at altitude. Let's say you're in the Mile High City in Denver where those guys have a real challenge shooting acrylics because they evaporate so fast. So in that situation, you're definitely going to want to be thinking about both flow aid and uh, slow dry in your thinner. All right. Well, I've got them both. I know that. <laughs> yep. yep. Me too. I do too. I run them both. All right. The, the next question comes from uh, Joel Makes Things, I think off Reddit uh, and a 72nd scale uh, channel on Reddit. How to lubricate your airbrush? Technical question. Yeah, this is one I get a fair amount. Um, you know, I've actually answered this question before, and I've had guys, you know, send me an email back and say, "My, my gosh, that's blasphemy! How can you ever put oil on your airbrush? It will contaminate the paint, and the world will end." Well, it will if you put too much. Um, uh, you know, uh, most air, with the exception of Aztecs, I spec, uh, most airbrush uh, levers are metal and they actuate, you know, against another metal surface. So that being the case, a metal on metal situation like that really does benefit from a little bit of lubricant. So but you also want to be careful because if you over lube, um, you know, the old concern is 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 an accurate one. You can get it in the paint and boy, talk about a slow dry that will affect your drying Um, or worse. It can actually get down into the air valve and uh, contaminate the seals down in the air valve, depending on what brush you have. And then you have an even bigger mess. So two two quick points on lubricating the brush. First, the oil. You want to use a nice, light, uh, penetrating oil, something like a WD-40 or Ballastol. 
And between the two, I actually prefer Ballastol. If you, if you can, spray or put some of that into a little beaker or a little container and take yourself a wooden uh, toothpick and soak that in there for a couple of minutes to the, the toothpick is just saturated with oil. So it can hold a little drop of oil at the very tip of the, of the uh, toothpick. And then go back to your brush and focus on the lever and pull the lever back, let the lever go forward and look at where the lever rides against the needle mechanism, which is usually in back of the lever. But also note if the lever rides on the sides, um, on each side of the main body, because many of them do depending on the brush. So for those points where you have a metal to metal, take your toothpick that's now saturated with a little bit of oil and take a tiny drop on the tip and just touch it to that area between the two parts and let it wick in between the two parts. That's really all the oil you need. Just a tiny little drop on the end of a toothpick. You'd be surprised how long that or how, how, how that will help um, the, the, the smoothness of your action on the lever. The other place to think about it is if you take the tailpiece of your uh, airbrush off and you look at how the needle chuck slides in and out of, you know, the, 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 the main body tube there, a big drop of oil right there at the needle chuck where it slides into the tube, that's another good place uh, to, put, to put some lubricant that will go a long way to making the, the action on your brush much, much smoother. Um, so I'm one, I've been lubricating my brushes ever since I was airbrushing in the early seventies, I started putting WD-40 on them. I've always been careful. I've never over lubricated. And as long as you don't over lubricate, you won't get it in your paint and you won't get it in the air valve. What are folks doing or using beeswax? So a lot of folks will use beeswax to seal their air cap or to seal the nozzle. Um, they'll, they'll get, you know, uh, leaks, air, uh, air leaks, uh, out from around the air cap or from around the nozzle or from around the Lotus cap, whatever brush they're using. And beeswax is, is a way of, of fixing those. My preference, and you know, I might, I might be stepping on, on some toes when I say this, but it won't be the first time. My preference is to fix the problem as opposed to covering it up with beeswax. So oftentimes, if let's say you have a harder steambucker and a water brush, if you have an air cap that won't seal and you're having to use beeswax to make it seal, you may want to take a look at the O-ring underneath that air cap and see if the O-ring has, 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 has just gone bad. It needs to be replaced. If you're shooting a harder steambuck brush and you're, you know, you have to use beeswax to get the, uh, the tip to seal, you may want to look at the nylon um, seal on the bottom of the nozzle, as well as the black O-ring under the air cap. Both of those uh, gone bad will, uh, will give you a leaky, a leaky tip. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, to answer your question, that's, that's my understanding of, of how guys are using beeswax. Um, I've never used it. I prefer to if I can figure out what the issue is and fix that and, you know, keep the beeswax out of it. All right. I didn't know if it was a lubrication technique or not, but I guess not. It's more of a sealing technique. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, I, that's what I've heard. Uh, up next, Adam Griffin has a, like probably a, a oft asked question for you. How to do fine lines with Vallejo, Vallejo Air versus a Vallejo model color. Get this a lot. I uh, used to shoot Vallejo for many years. It's a good paint. One of the things uh, that you do, at least I like to do, is uh, very similar to what I said just a few minutes ago. I'll take my Vallejo uh, thinner 
and I'll add Liquitex Flow-Aid to 5% to the thinner, and I'll add Liquitex Slow-Dry to 5% to the thinner. And that will be my base thinner, and that's also a great thinner to do fine line with, because when you go into fine line airbrushing, the ratio of air to paint changes drastically versus if you're shooting, let's say, a wet coat. So you have way more air than you do paint, and it, that's why you get tip dry so readily when you're doing fine line work. So having both Liquitex Flow-Aid and Slow-Dry in your thinner is you know, a, a step ahead um, uh, for keeping that tip dry under control. So that's the first thing I do. Now, when it comes to um, fine lining Vallejo, you have the challenge of, are you talking about Vallejo air or are you talking about Vallejo color? Because everybody knows Vallejo air is thinner than is Vallejo color. So for Vallejo color, which is roughly the same viscosity as is life color or as is uh, Tamaya or as is, you know, a lot of other, you know, acrylics. I will, as I do for most acrylics, I will dilute them to anywhere between 30 to 40% paint in 60 to 70% thinner, okay? So roughly a third of paint, 33%, 33% paint, 66% thinner. That's my, that's my general, that's my general uh, uh, dilution for just general spraying. If I'm going to be doing fine line, I'll take Vallejo down to about 20%. 20 to 25% paint, 75 to 80% thinner. Then with that thin a paint, I'll cut my, my pressure down to anywhere between 8 to 10 pounds. Now, a lot of guys are out there going, now you can't dial in 8 on your compressor. And no, you can't. But what you can do is dial in about 10 pounds on your compressor so you know what 10 feels like. And then using an inline air valve, which I prefer to use clipped to the, to the end of my airbrush, I will by feel and just experience take that 10 or 12 pounds I've got coming in from my compressor and cut it down to somewhere around 8, 8 to 10 pounds. And also at that point, now I've got my, I've got my paint thinned accordingly. I've got my pressure dropped accordingly. Now the, the hardest part for guys to do when it comes to fine lining is closing up the distance between the tip of the brush and the surface of the model. It's the hard part, especially the aircraft guys, because you, you know, we deal with uh, compound curves. And if you're doing something that, you know, that is a fine line that runs the length of the fuselage or the wing or whatever, you're going to have to maintain this very, very close working distance between the tip of the brush and the model as you follow along this compound curve. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to do on all models, but any model that has compound curves like autos and, and planes, it's a, a little bit of more of a challenge. Let me give you an idea of what I mean by uh, close. So if you're down to 20, 25% paint, eight to 10 pounds of pressure, the airbrush tip from the surface of the model is going to be a quarter of an inch or smaller. So you're right up on it and guys go, oh my gosh, that's too close. And they tend to pull away as we have, you know, we all have a natural tendency to do. You don't want to mess the finish up by going too, too close and getting the paint to spider. But with practice, you'll learn to get that quarter of an inch or so spacing and maintain it while you're working on your line. So that's how I would approach diluting and spraying Vallejo color 
Now, Vallejo Air, slightly different animal. Um, it is, of course, way thinner than Vallejo Color. So with that, I almost reverse it. I run 70% paint because it's already thin, 70% paint and 30% thinner, okay? That my pressure about the same and my working distance will be about the same. But diluting the two is almost, they're almost bookends. So 30% paint, 70% thinner with Vallejo color. 70, 60 to 70% paint, the balance of that thinner with Vallejo air. You are absolutely right that getting up right up on the model is is a tough thing to do and to, to get around your mind. But the amazing thing is, especially with the harder and steam back, when you do that, and you've got the pressure dialed back, and you've got the paint thinned, and you get right up on it. I mean, it's almost like you're drawing on the model with a pen or a pencil. Yep, exactly right. People, when I used to do fine line demos at my favorite local hobby shop, people would say, well, you know, can you do can you do a fine line as, as thin as a pencil? And I look at them and smile and say, only if the pencil is sharpened. <laughs> because if you do get that working and the working you're right working distance is the hardest part to nail you know in the whole technique but once you get that down and you can maintain that working distance along with you know the the dilution and the pressure you literally can get a sharpened you know pencil line um that you can control um yes. and to your point with the harder steenbeck you know especially the infinity which I know you're an infinity driver David yeah um, the Infinity is the is the ninth Porsche 911 of fine lines. So when it's doing a one millimeter or one millimeter or less wide line, it is on its court. That's what it was designed to do. Um, and really, it is a question of physics because with the with the tip that you're running, which is only 0.15 millimeter in diameter, that's how big the orifice is. The next size uh, tip up is a 0.2. So it really is also simply a question of physics. The tip and the whole uh, uh, brush is engineered to deliver a line that thin. Well, I think uh, at a higher level, what uh, a lot of folks may run up against is is some of the dilutions you're talking about might seem extreme to some people who are just moving into those kind of paints and, the, and the, certainly the working distances too, but seems to be what it takes. You're right, Mike. And that's something I get a lot. Um, you know, guys usually like to start at 50%, 50 percent paint. It just feels right, you know, 50-50. Then they start trying to do fine line and they can't get rid of the stipple. First, they can't get a, a, a really fine line um, because the paint stipples because it's too thick. So um, you know, oftentimes by trial and error, they will figure out that, hey, I have to go down to 40 or 30 percent paint if I want to get a fine line. Um, and you're right. If you're first, if you're right out of the gate and you're used to using 50% paint, what I'm suggesting is going to be like, you know, alien. Um, but if you put some time behind your brush and you shoot some of these more dilute mixtures at a lower pressure, that's the trick and a closer working distance, you'd be surprised how well it works. All right. We got an, another technical question. Uh, this one's coming from, uh, a Michael Dassey and, uh, uh, Gene Dubay, I guess they both asked a similar question. You've ganged them together here. How to deal with moisture in the compressor tank? Yeah, we've all been there. It's been, you know, it's been a year since you've you know, uh, emptied your tank and you do so and you get the, the nasty red water, you know, 
um, that pours out of the tank. It, you know, I think we've all been there and seen that. Um, and I get a lot of letters from guys asking, you know, how I can, ha- how they can uh, treat their tanks to, to, to lessen that corrosion. So um, about, oh gosh, I want to say 20 years ago, I was fortunate to meet up with a guy in, in, in the local hobby shop that was, you know, my fave at the time. And, uh, this guy was a master modeler and he, he laid his, uh, technique on me and I've been doing it ever since. And it works beautifully. So, uh, once every six months to once a year, depending on how often I've been using my compressor, I will wait for a real warm, sunny day. And I will, uh, take the compressor outside. I'll, uh, take the plug off the, uh, uh, you know, uh, open the, the drain plug. I'll drain the tank. And then I will sit the compressor in the sun in such a way as to, you know, make sure the tank gets, you know, a, a direct sunlight. And I'll let it sit there for a couple of hours until the compressor just gets nice and toasty. With the idea being that you're driving off all the moisture and all the water that's, that's in the compressor, you know, by letting it sit there in the sun for a couple of hours. Then I'll take WD-40 and I'll put that little red, you know, stick they have that, you know, clips into the, the top of the spray can there. And very carefully, I'll insert that through the, the open drain plug hole and I will squirt penetrating oil onto the inner surface of the tank walls, taking care to not direct the stream at where you can see there are clearly electronics or valves connected to the tank. So direct the stream of oil in, in, into other areas where there are no electronics or, you know, plumbing connecting to the tank. And then I let it sit out in the sun for a couple more hours and let, you know, let that hot metal just kind of soak up that penetrating oil. Then I'll, uh, without putting the drain plug in, I'll take the compressor back inside. I'll let it cool down and acclimate to room temp, put the plug back in it and use it for six months or whatever until I do that, uh, until I drain it again. What I found is when I started doing that trick of heating it up and shooting the tank with a penetrating oil, when I did drain the tank, it wasn't rusty red anymore. So, I mean, best case, we should all drain the tank after every painting session. I've never been that diligent. I don't think most guys are. Um, So I, I think it's more realistic that we end up draining these things every couple of months. But if you do take the take the step of or take the time to, you know, put the put the machine out into the uh, into the sun, let it get warm and then shoot penetrating oil, you will decrease drastically the just the sheer redness and the amount of corrosion, you know, that is that is characteristic of that water when you do drain it. And this is water accumulating in in, in the reservoir tank. And, 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 and it's not something your inline moisture trap on your feed line is going to going to no. fix. no. And, you know, that's when you start seeing when you start seeing a lot of moisture building up uh, on the trap. You know, uh, when I was uh, when I lived in Nebraska, um, I would get uh, moisture building up on the trap every time I fired the compressor up and I'd have to, you know, empty the trap of moisture before I could airbrush. Um, But that was that was that was the normal situation in Nebraska, you know, in the winter with the heater on. I watched that moisture trap carefully because in the weather that I live in here in Seattle, um, I hardly ever see any moisture in the moisture trap. When I start seeing moisture in the trap, that tells me that I have enough uh, uh, water in my my compressor tank that I need to drain it. So I use that as an indicator. 
that I've got moisture in the tank. Dave, Dave ruined a compressor, not draining it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely true. But you know what? I, I got, I did not drain it nearly as often as I should. And I have learned my lesson from that. But then yep. again, I got 28 years out of that compressor. Uh, so going to call it good. My complaints are few and far between, but yeah, any, if you have an air a compressor with a tank, that is the one thing that's the easiest to get lazy about. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, if I wanted to be preachy, I'd say, you know, you drain your tank after every airbrushing session or once a week. And I've never done that. I've never done that one single time in my life. (laughs) You know, it usually goes four or five, six months, sometimes longer if I haven't done a lot of models. I think that's I think that's the majority of guys out there. So which is why I think everybody uh, has at one time or another been, you know, treated to that nasty red water when they empty their tank. Well, here's here's an interesting one, and maybe you can shed some light even to, from what angle this question is coming from. It's from Darren Ramirez, and he wants to know if UV light can be used to decrease the curing time for acrylic paints. It can. It can. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, before, before answering that question, it might be a good idea to back up a wee bit and consider drying versus curing. Okay. So, um, when you shoot, let's say, let's, let's say, you know, let's use mission as an example. Why? Cause it's an easy one. Cause it's polyurethane. It's a polyurethane based acrylic. So if you shoot mission and I like to have a, I should have said this earlier, by the way, on dry coats and wet coats, especially for shooting acrylics, I like to have a hairdryer handy. Um, I borrowed my wife's hairdryer years ago and she's just never gotten it back. Um, it's very <laughs> handy. When you're shooting acrylics, you know, when you shoot that wet coat after your dry coat, you can you can take a hairdryer to that wet coat and dry it out a lot faster if you want to put yet another wet coat on it because you don't have enough coverage. So it decreases your paint time down, especially with acrylics. But the the thing about, um, again, shooting acrylics is uh, dry versus cure. So you've shot uh, you've shot some mission paint. You can use a hairdryer on it to dry it out. It'll dry, as will any acrylic, pretty quickly. But that's not the same as curing. So when a paint cures, it happens after it dries. And during that curing phase, you actually have little chemical crosslinks between the, 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 the polyurethane polymers that are being formed and stabilizing the paint. And it's, it's, it's this curing step that will lead to a, a really hardy, you know, uh, f- uh, good finish with an, uh, with an acrylic. Um, and it's also, if you don't allow the paint to cure fully is what can lead to uh, paint coming off with tape or coming off very easily with your fingernail. It's simply that the paint hasn't cured yet. So one of the ways that you can induce these crosslinks, these chemical crosslinks between, you know, these, let's say, polyurethane polymers, or if you're using another acrylic paint that is, is has utilized an acrylic resin as the binder instead of the polyurethane, it's the same deal. Acrylic resins, resins will form these crosslinks and stabilize. That's how the paint becomes stabilized. UV light causes these crosslinks to occur at a faster rate. So it's used in industry a lot to uh, 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 slow, or I should say, uh, slow the curing time, increase the curing rate with all kinds of 
of polymers, plastics, and any kind of paint or resin that uses you know, uh, these kinds of, of reagents like polyurethane. So it can be used, uh, I should say, you know, UV light can be used efficiently to uh, cure uh, acrylic paints. I went right to John Tampkin, the guy behind Mission Models Paints, who's been using this trick for years. He was actually the first guy to tell me about it. And um, that's how he, because he pushes stuff stuff through. I've, I've seen John airbrush. He's very good with an airbrush and he's very fast. And one of his tricks is he gets a lot of things done and cured quickly because he puts them under a red hot um, heat lamp that he just gets from Home, um, home Depot or Lowe's. And uh, fortunately, that that wavelength of, of light is is very good at inducing the polymerization, if you will, of the polyurethane emission, but it will do so for other acrylic paints as well. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I had the same reaction. I'd never even thought of that. John swears by it. You know, and I if you do a quick Google search, you'll see there's all kinds of lamps out there that are made specifically for this for uh, you know for you know, decreasing cure times or increasing the cure rates of of resins and polymers and stuff um and some of them are really super expensive john has been having really good luck with just those red heat lamps from lowe's or home depot so which are not too expensive if you're using uv light or 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 similar to to do that what's the what's the cure benefit time in other words does it have it does it quarter it does it you know, just make it 10% faster? Any idea? That's a good question. So uh, again, uh, I've spoken to some guys who do this. And if see, if I'm shooting an acrylic and I know I'm going to be putting tape on top of it, I will always wait overnight. That's my rule. If, right. it's gonna, if it's gonna get tape, I'll wait overnight. And I've never had an issue waiting overnight. Overnight for me is 12 to 16 hours before I get back to the booth and shoot some paint, right? Guys who have been doing this trick say that if they shoot, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the paint, they use a hairdryer to, to you know, uh, drive the water out of the paint to dry it and then put it under a uh, UV light. They say they get it down to about four hours. So they can go shoot paint four hours later. They're putting tape all over it. And they don't have to be concerned that the tape's going to rip the paint off. Hmm. So if I did that, I guarantee you I'd pull some paint up. That's why I wait. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my luck too. I, I, especially when it comes to painting, I let things over cure rather than under cure. You can't go wrong doing that. You really can't. Exactly. I mean, inter- introducing an, an element of patience at, at that stage of the painting process is always a good deal. Well, moving back to, to painting, this question, I, and I failed this one. I didn't get the name down, but uh, maybe they can correct me uh, when they hear this, and I hope they do. Uh, do I need to completely clean the airbrush between colors, a full flush and needle pull, or just thinner flush and progress through the light to dark colors that I'm using? What's so your the strategy, John? the answer is if your paint job lends itself to going lightest to darkest, right? Yeah. Then mm-hmm. you can usually get by with just a thorough rinse out, you know, and, and an extreme example of that is you've just shot white or gray and you have to shoot black accents. 
Um, and so, you know, you, you, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to see a lot of that white or gray come through black, especially if it's just a, a trace amount in your airbrush. So if you can arrange, um, the sequence of painting such that you go from darkest to lightest, you can often make do with just the thorough cleaning. That's not always the case. Oftentimes we have to go the reverse direction. Um, in which case I'm going to do a more thorough cleaning. The colors you really have to watch out for in my experience are colors like red and blue. Um, if you have shot red or blue and you're going to shoot white or gray next, <laughs> um, in my experience, it doesn't take much red or blue to give a, 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 a tint or a hue to a paint cup full of white or gray paint. So in those instances, when I've shot a really strong color and I'm going to be going to a lighter color, I will oftentimes take, take the time to put the brush through a complete, you know, three soak cleaning. Um, in which case that, that lessens the chance to practically zero of contaminating with a, with a darker color. So I guess in short, I would say, you know, a little bit of common sense, a little bit of, a uh, little bit of scheming ahead of time. And if you can't do uh, uh, light to dark, then, yeah, you, you may have to take the time to just do a complete clean of your brush. Well, the next one's along the same lines. This is actually my question. I want to hear what you had to say about this. Um, it, it seems when I paint metallics that something else needs to be done to get that sucker clean again before I start painting anything else. Because often I've, I've I painted metallic, thought I had it clean put a pigmented color in there instead of a metallic color yep. uh, and, and lo and behold right there on the top of the paint cups some flecks floating around staring me right in the face yep ugly little flecks too um so i'm sure you guys remember the old matchbox uh one thirty second scale like spitfire mark 22 yeah so i built that kit in high school and uh, pardon the tangent but um I had shot some metallic on something else and thought I'd clean the brush. And the next step was to shoot the clear coat on my Mark 22. Ouch. <laughs> and so thinking the brush was clean, I threw my old tester's gloss. Cause you gotta remember this is high school guys, right? So I threw my tester's gloss in there and I'm just spraying away. And I ended up with the only spit Mark 22 that had a pearl finish. Either that or it'd been to the stripper bar. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, I vowed to never, ever again shoot a clear coat after a metallic. Um, and I will, I'll go farther than that and say, if I've shot a metallic, I shoot metallics and treat them, you know, very carefully because it takes so little flake to ruin a paint job. Yeah especially if there's not supposed to be any flake in it. Um, so uh, if I've shot metallics, I will put the brush through a complete, and I'm going to use the brush again. I will put the brush through a complete three soak um, uh, clean. And uh, you remember earlier we were talking about that residual amount of, of, of uh, thinner or paint that, that gets on the backside of the master seal. Yes that's when you have to be thinking about that when you've just shot a metallic. 
because there's going to be a trace amount of thinner and metallic on the backside of the master seal and hanging out in little nooks and crannies in the brush. You're not really going to be able to get that out without doing a three soak clean. Not in my experience anyway. I don't think there's any easy way around that one, which is why, again, for folks who are deep pocketed and like to play with airbrushes, um, some guys like to uh, devote one brush to metallics. Um, and so they never have to worry about mixing uh, metallics with clear coats or primary colors um, and never have to, you know, worry about a pearled finish. That's my approach. I have one brush that is de uh, is devoted to just shooting metallics um, and I never have to worry about it. That's exactly what I was going to say. That is, that was my solution too. And babe, all it takes is one time to be burned by that. And then it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, one another airbrush is not such a bad thing. Yeah. But, you know, for the guys who can't afford the second brush, they can, they can still use uh, the same brush. Just like we were saying earlier, you know, uh, two different brushes for lacquers and, and acrylics. No, not at all. Um, it may take you a bit more work um, to clean the brush out to, you know, after you use a metallic before you use it for a paint or a clear coat, but it can be done. Um, usually if you just do the three soak method, those three five minute soaks are enough time to get that thinner from the backside of the master seal and get all the flake and stuff out of the nooks and crannies of the brush. So it can be done without a new brush, but uh, or a second brush, but a second brush does make it easier. Well, what is it about the metallic pigments? Cause for example, if, if I've just sprayed a metallic and I've, I'm running just straight thinner through it, the residual pigment in the cup just looks like it's boiling in there before you yes. even pull the trigger on there. It's just rolling around circulating yes. i don't know if they, yes. what, what's up with that and it's I, because I, they're I, evil <laughs> <laughs> is that is that the scientific explanation <laughs> that's the that's the energy of evil <laughs> there you go <laughs> i know what you're talking about that that um that that uh oh god i'm trying to think of the scientific word for it um I can't think of it anyway. Yeah, that that movement of the flakes within the fluid. I know what you say. Um, metallics are funny for a couple of reasons. As you guys know, if you're shooting a metallic, uh, you should occasionally uh, mix it up in your paint cup. If you're yeah. if you're shooting a big 48 scale Mustang and you're shooting at all dural aluminum or whatever you're doing, you have a five mil paint cup of metallic. Um, two minutes after you mix that, that metallic flake is going to fall to the bottom of the paint cup. And you're going to start getting a thicker paint <laughs> with with more of a texture out of it um, than you want. So, any kind or you can use a gravity feed airbrush for that purpose. That's that's the one advantage I have, or, or suction feed airbrush. Suction I mean, feed, yeah, suction feed helps for sure. Um, but the easy thing to do is just have yourself a little um, uh, pipette. And pipette the paint up and down inside the, you know, inside the paint cup yeah, every couple of minutes to suspend the suspend Brownian motion. Thank you. That neuron just fired, David. <laughs> All right. There's hope for you yet. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't be cruel. Um, <laughs> the um, yeah, Brownian motion, the movement of that that the just fluid movement. That's you know. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, Siphon feed airbrushes. Yeah, well, I, I do think siphon feed airbrushes make uh, 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 help solve that problem of the 
metallic falling to the bottom, it's easier to simply shake the brush. Yes. Um, without a doubt. But, but the, the thing that I've noticed, what is it about metallics? You can clean, clean, clean your spray and it's clear. Your spray is clear. You think you've got it all. They're and sticky. then the moment you add a pigmented paint and yep. you're spraying, yep. boom, you see that little flake of metal. So something to think about there. Um, I've, I've seen that too. And part of it could be that the flake is just sticky. Another thing could be that if you were just hear me out for a second, right? If you were yeah. shooting, let's just say you're shooting tester silver, right? In enamel, right? Yeah. Sure. And you've got some of that flake in your brush. You cleaned it out with testers thinner and you got it all out, quote unquote, and italicized. You got it all out, right? right? Okay. But now you're switching to Gunze. And without washing the brush with Gunze, straight Gunze thinner first, you go right to a Gunze, a paint that's been diluted in Gunze. And that, that Gunze thinner is going to dislodge some of that flake that the testers didn't. Gotcha. So if you recall one of the things uh, way back when we were talking about the very basics of airbrushing, um, one of the things I said I strongly recommend taking uh, some of the thinner that you're going to use in whatever paint you're going to shoot, take that thinner, put you know a third of a cup in your paint cup, and move the lever back and forth, blow a little bit of it through the brush, and then let the brush sit for five minutes with just thinner in it. With the idea being that all the little nooks and crannies and threaded areas will be filled with thinner. Um, any nasties that you left on the back side of the master seal will hopefully go back into solution, right? And move to the front yep. side of the master seal. And then when you blow that thinner out before you put your paint in, you've now cleared the brush, if you will, of any residual nasties that could be lingering like metallic flake. So if you always remember to put thinner, the thinner du jour, if you will, through your brush before the paint, if there is some of that residual metallic in there, you'll usually get it out. That makes perfect sense. Well, on the topic of thinners, Don Gilman has a question about homebrewed thinners and is wanting some information on the basics. Now, this is one I, I just, I've never gone there. I, I've always used factory thinners straight up. I've never... Yep done the blend your own or whatever. And I'm not sure what drives people to do that. Tell us about it. Dr. Strange brush. What's going well, on? Well, um, as to motivations, um, uh, you know, a lot of guys are just tinkerers. That's the first thing. Um, yeah. Second to that, um, there is, there are savings to be had. If you can come up with your own homebrew, ah, okay. it, it it is often way cheaper to make a, a two gallons of homebrew versus, you know, buying a, a pint of your favorite thinner or whatever it is. You know, it's going to be way, way more expensive. It's kind of like beer. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like beer. Now, I'm with you. I I've I tried my hand at homebrews 10, 15 years ago. I got them to work. Yeah, it was fun. Um, for me, it's easier to just buy the manufacturer's thinner. Um, as you as I've said, I usually add both. Liquitex Flow Aid and Liquitex Slow Dry to all of my acrylic thinners, whatever they are. Um, I, that's what I add. Um, it, it, that, that's, you know, they work well. Um, but if you do want to try your hand at making uh, a homebrew thinner, most guys go with alcohol and they'll go with ethanol, they'll go with isopropyl. 
Some of them might go with denatured alcohol. Um, what I'll, I'll just give you a couple of hints um, for those guys who want to try the homebrew thinners. Um, if you're dealing with what I would call a, a, a very strong uh, water-based acrylic like Vallejo, like uh, Model Master, like Life Color, um, those kinds of, of paints, you can usually make a homebrew thinner that is based on isopropyl or ethanol. Um, somewhere around 40% alcohol. The balance of that in, you know, clean deionized water is a good place to start. But here's the deal. Most guys don't think anything about adding wetting agents to their home brews. And a wetting agent gets right back to what we were talking about earlier, like Liquitex Flowade, which is going to, you know, make it a wetter, thinner, so we don't get tip dry. Or they don't think about adding a paint retarder to slow the paint down. So just like we were talking for the base thinners, you know, the manufacturer's thinners, if you're making your own home brew, you should think about adding some Liquitex Flowade and paint retarder to it to slow the paint down and to make the paint wetter. Because home brews usually tend to be too dry, meaning there's too much alcohol and not enough water. Now, if you want to try a homebrew for, for some of the paints that are more of the acrylic lacquers, and here we're talking about things like Tamaya, of course, which is the ACDC paint. It can go either an acrylic thinner or a hardcore lacquer thinner. The, the new kit on the block, AK Real Colors, um, my, fave, my fave paint these days, it just goes on beautifully. Um, that, much like Tamaya, is also an acrylic lacquer. Um, Gunze, uh, Gunze Sanyo, um, uh, as you guys know, is a very strong lacquer. For those kinds of paints, you can make a homebrew thinner, but you're going to need to use a stronger alcohol. So instead of going with ethanol or isopropyl, you should start with denatured alcohol. And the same, uh, the same caveats apply, denatured alcohol for cleaning glass, not for fuel. And the same percents apply as well. 30 or 40% alcohol is a good place to start, um, but you should be ready to use a lot of trial and error um, to dial that in to something that works for you. So anyway, I don't recommend them for me. Um, it's easier to just buy the manufacturers and add my, um, my goodies to it. But if you want to try it, um, those are some basic guidelines to start with. Well, yeah, I think it could be volume driven. There's people out there. Well, most modelers build more than I do. <laughs> Me too. Me too. So, I have a very, very slow, uh, slow uh, uh, rate. So don't feel bad. No. So, I, you know, I don't I don't need copious amounts of thinner all the time because of my <laughs> massive throughput through my through my uh, spray booth. So, right. That, that right. makes perfect sense. Well, we're going to get to the last question tonight. And it's awesome. probably going to fall back on the fine lines probably, or maybe there's some other tricks you can tell us, but uh, uh, it's from Stefano Orsi out of uh, Quebec, Canada. And he's wanting to know how to tackle Italian smoke rings in one seventy second scale. Okay. So here it goes. Here's the secret. Are you ready? <laughs> don't, don't say, don't say buy the decals like Dave did. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to say. Tell, yep, tell the I, gentleman there are decals available. <laughs> yes. There are. I have no doubt that John can do it, having seen his sand and spinach Italian camouflage in 72nd scale. I have no doubt that John could do it. 
but which, since there's decals available, why would you put yourself through that nightmare? <laughs> well, c- c- because d- decals can be their own special place in hell. Well, yeah. we'll talk about those, but these smoke <laughs> yeah. ring decals, particularly Mike Grant's smoke ring decals, yes. are awesome. They are. They're right. awesome. They work beautifully. I just can't imagine doing that. But this is how we separate the men from the boys in airbrushing school. Okay, then I'm a, I'm a boy. I'll be over here. <laughs> <laughs> so before you can even think about tackling smoke rings, you have to be pretty adept at just shooting a fine line. So you have to have all of your dilution, pressure, and working distance issues um, covered. Um, you have to be able to shoot a fine line reliably. It has to be almost second nature. Um, you can't be focusing on the fine line aspect of it and do a smoke ring. <laughs> so um, that's why I put shooting smoke rings, uh, no matter what the scale, in about the same category as doing 172nd mottling, which both yeah. of those reside in the very tip top of the airbrushing pyramid of difficulties. Um, they're both really difficult to do. But that said, I have shot Italian smoke rings on 72nd scale. Um, it can be done. And really it, what it takes is, as I said, you have to have a firm handle on shooting a fine line and you have to be willing to put practice in. And I put a lot of practice on sheet styrene and paint mules and really got good at the technique. I'd say I put 12 or 15 hours of just shooting smoke rings before I ever actually picked the model up to do it. Um, so, uh, that's not much of a primer other than, you know, it, it all stems out of fine lines. So if you master that, the smoke rings really aren't that much more of a, of a challenge. Would, would you say you have to get to the point where you can do fine lines sec by second nature so that the only thing you're thinking about when you're putting on the smoke ring is the smoke ring aspect of it? You're not worried about the fine line portion of it or or anything. Exactly. Because the challenge with a smoke ring is you gotta meet you gotta meet you gotta make it meet when you come around the circle. And for me, that takes about all the neurons I've got all firing at the same time. Well, as much as they can fire anymore. Um it, you know, so if you're thinking about, oh, watch my spacing, watch my pressure, you know, watch, I'm going to, no, you're not going to be able to do a smoke ring. Um, so spend some time behind the brush, just learning basic fine line technique. And then once you have that um, as part of fine line technique, immobilize the model on a base. I use a, a pan of ice and just a wad of putty. And uh, uh, I have the, the model set up so in the vase, uh, vice, I can move the vice any number of degrees and rotate the model so that I can get exactly on what I'm shooting. And I also have my hand immobilized in a, uh, in a, uh, a shooter support. Um, I'm sure if you guys have gone to a, a gun range, you're familiar with these leather supports oh, yeah. that you use on the forearm, you know, the forestock of a rifle, or you can put your wrist in it if you're shooting pistol. I've got one of those that I use to stabilize my airbrush hand. And then I've got the model in a vise that I can use to, you know, get the exact angle I want. So when I get to actually shooting that smoke ring, um, I'm using very little movement in my hand. I'm only using my wrist. I'm not using my arm. Um, And I, you know, each smoke ring is an individual shot 
shoot a smoke ring, reposition the model, reposition your hand, shoot that one, repeat. And, you know, that's something I don't think that that people think about when they're doing detail airbrushing, you know, fine lines or close in or modeling or whatever, is that thing where you immobilize your hand or wrist so that you don't get you don't get movement, unintentional movement. Now, I'm very sensitive to that because of, of my uh, uh, essential tremor. And and the that thing where you immobilize the, the spraying hand and it gives you so much better control over, over the fine detail painting. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, I love bringing guys into the shop to do fine line. And I say, say, show me how do you do some, your fine line. And they pick the model up in one hand, which has got its own kind of trimmer. <laughs> then they pick the airbrush up in their other hand, which has a different trimmer, <laughs> you know, and between the two trimmers, they shall meet. Right. Um, and it's so much easier to immobilize both things, put, put the model on the bench, affix to a vice, put your wrist in a support. And one last thing that people don't think about is, at least for me, is I like a heavy airbrush because it really does help to steady my hand. Yeah, that's one of the things. That's why, you know, may they rest in peace. I never could wrap my hand or brain around an Aztec airbrush. Yeah. Because for me, there was just, there was no weight there and I never could really steady my hand. So if you have a hard time uh, fine lining and you're using a light aluminum main bodied aluminum airbrush, you may want to think about adding a, a heavier brush to your, to your collection because that, that helps immensely. All right, guys. Well, we've exhausted this episode's questions from our, from our listening audience. But John, I know you've got some news for Model Paint Solutions you'd like to talk about. Catch us up. All right. Appreciate that. Uh, so as some folks have heard, the uh, North American distributor for Harder Steenbeck retired a few months back. And uh, Harder Steenbeck has not given up uh, on supporting those of us who are, who are supporting them. And uh, we are uh, we are now receiving our shipments of Harder Steenbeck airbrushes and parts directly from Germany, from from the Harder Steenbeck factory. I'm now inter interacting with them directly. Um, that's going very, very well. So any of the folks who are worried about not being able to get parts, it's not going to be an issue. Um, all the parts are available and they will be they will remain available. Uh, Harder Steenbeck is committed to staying in North America. So that's not an issue. So that's that. Um, also, uh, real quick, I, I have been looking for a, a brush to add to Model Paint Solutions that really uh, it caters more to um, a beginner uh, versus someone with more experience. As you, as you know, it's all harder Steenbeck brushes on the site. And I'm pleased to announce that uh, starting this week, we will be carrying the AK Interactive uh, AK9000 basic line airbrush and i tried one of these hummers about three months ago a client showed up in my uh shop classroom for a, a a lesson and brought the brush with him and i couldn't believe what a great brush it was i was really surprised and as you guys know um the reason that there's only harder steamback brushes on the site is because it's the only brush that i can actually get behind because i've used one for many many years Likewise, with this AK brush, I can get behind it. It's a quality brush. It's heavy in the hand. 
Um, it's perfect for beginners. Um, the way the brush is configured, it's absolutely perfect for somebody new to the sport. Um, and despite the fact that it's a nice, heavy quality brush, we're going to be able to offer it for about $70. So that's well below the $100 target that I had. Because a lot of guys, I get a lot of emails from guys saying, I want to start airbrushing. Um, I have $100 for a compressor and $100 for my airbrush. Well, I didn't have anything harder Steenbeck-wise that started at $100. The lowest harder Steenbeck I have is $154, which is a great brush to start with, but it's not less than $100. So anyway, we'll have those starting this week. I'm very excited about it for the beginners out there. Um, much like our harder Steenbeck brushes, each AK brush will come with a Mix Kit 101 free of charge. That's 3 mil pipettes, 1 mil pipettes, stir sticks a three-piece beaker set, five and two mil spin tubes, and a, a, a bottle assortment, 40, 40, 20, 10, and six mil bottles. So you get that whole mix kit that goes with your airbrush. That's more than enough tools to get you started mixing and diluting paints. And in addition to that, as with all of our brushes, once you get the brush, if you have any questions, um, you have a free tutorial with me um, that you can arrange at your convenience. So uh, I can help you face to face with anything, any issues you're having with the brush. And lastly, as I do with all the harder Steenbeck brushes, all of the AK brushes will be bench tested by me before they go out. So if you're if you're looking at getting into airbrushing, but you're not sure about a brush that you haven't necessarily heard of, and you don't want to end up getting a lemon, that's why I can get behind them. I will bench test every brush before it goes out. So when you get the brush, all you need to do is hook it up to air, put paint in it with a little bit of thinner before, and it is ready to rock and roll without any problems. So anyway, that's about it from the front at Model Paint Solutions, guys. John, I got to say, I am amazed at how quickly the time passes when we get together to do these. And I always come away having learned stuff. So I hope that uh, you'll commit to coming back real soon to do a session on decals or on some other subject or maybe even more airbrushing. Hey, decals, we can talk decals. We can talk clear coats, whatever you guys want to do. Uh, we'll, probably end up, we'll end up doing both at some point. I'm so Absolutely. good. <laughs> All right, guys, I enjoyed it. All, All right. right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Dave. Dr. Miller never ceases to impress. No, I tell you what, it, it, uh, one of the things that always amazes me is you, he and I, we get up on the Zencaster chat, start recording, and it seems like 15 minutes and I look down and an hour's gone by. And I, it never fails when we talk to him that I learn something new. And I think that's one of the joys of, of talking to him and listening to him. And uh, if he does end up doing seminars in Omaha, uh, you all definitely don't want to miss it because as great as it is to listen to him on the podcast, uh, seeing him demonstrate this stuff in person is just amazing. It really, really is amazing. Well, Dave... How's Snoop Dogg's wine working out for you? Well, while I can, I, I don't think there's any ganja in it. Uh, I got to tell you, this is this is a pretty good wine. I mean, 
not too sweet, not too dry, very drinkable, very enjoyable. Uh, I I got to say, Snoop Dogg impressed and, and really impressed when you consider that a bottle of this is like $9.75. So it is by no means an expensive wine. And uh, if wine is your thing, particularly red wine, I recommend 19 Crimes Cali Red. It's a good, <laughs> good wine. So I know we don't even have to talk about the uh, about the bullet. We know that the bullet was definitely serviceable. Oh, it was. And you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and get the big bottle when we go to go to Omaha. That that's a good idea because everybody's going to want it. Want some? You're right. And I'll tell you one other thing: we'll have to take to Omaha is some old Forster 1920. Yep, and some gumball head. Well, so we'll take a lot of gumball head. So, Mike, as we get here to the end, uh, do you have shout out? I do have some shout outs. All right, shout them out. I want to shout out the uh, most recent PayPal contributors to Plastic Model Mojo. Uh, we've got Jeff Hens, Tim Cavalier, and Mike Luzzi popped in there. And uh, I don't know if that's from Mike or from the from the guys up in Peoria Collective, but uh, we appreciate all that. Some some. Uh, some nice contributions from those folks. And also in the PayPal list is Ed Barrett, who we talked to out at Las Vegas about the Yellow Wings and, yes. and uh, had a short segment with him. And Ed, I haven't forgot about you. Uh, he wants to possibly do a segment on the system engineer's approach to planning model projects. And I haven't given that a whole lot of thought yet, but I want to. And I think uh, sometime sometime in the f- future, we're going to get Ed back on here to, to kind of talk that out. Cause I think it's a, would, would be an interesting, interesting concept to hash out. Uh, if you want to donate through PayPal, you can do so by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com and take the heart icon link in the upper right-hand corner. I'll take you to a direct PayPal link where you can contribute to our show. And it's most appreciated. Uh, we've also got some Patreon subscribers now. Uh, Mike Shelley, David Waples and Alex Restrepo from our own club there. Thanks, Alex. We appreciate those recurring contributions. Most appreciated. All this has really helped us out a lot and really made this a lot easier burden to carry. And we can just bring you more content and uh, just keep Plastic Model Mojo rolling. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yes, I want to echo that. Thank you very much. Because, you know, it's really nice not to have to go deep in the hole to do what we're doing. Uh, Y'all really have offset the costs of a lot of... uh, a lot of what we're doing here, and it, we're most grateful for it. My shout out is a fellow podcaster. Uh, my shout out is John Bonani at Plastic Posse Podcast because John stepped up. A lot of people talk a big game, a lot of people complain. John stepped up, he ran for what I think is the most difficult office in IPMS USA, which is second vice president. And second vice president is the party in charge of liaisoning between the national organization and the local chapter that is hosting a national. And John stepped up, ran for the office. God knows why, but I'm glad that he did. And he got elected. And so I'll be serving with John on the IPMSE board for the next uh, 
two years and uh, I wish him luck because that's, that's a tough job. So I salute him stepping up and doing it. Hopefully he didn't step in. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's a possibility. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, John. And we look forward to seeing you next time, wherever it is. Yep. Absolutely. All right, Dave, let's wrap this up because we've got a long one. Thanks to Dr. Strangebrush. As they always say, Dave, so many kits. So little time, Mike. I'll see you down the road. All right, man. Take it easy. You got it. Take care. All right.